The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Brought to you by Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Seeing what others have seen, but uncovering what others may not. Global research that helps you harness disruption. Voted top global research firm five years running. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. South Williamsburg, or Billyburg, is that what I should call it? Dan, no one calls it Billy Bird. Except for those people like me who live in Brooklyn <laughs> Heights, right? And we fantasize about being 30 years younger and hanging out. I think she hit the nail on the head. Hi, and welcome back to Bloomberg Benchmark, a show about the global economy. It's Thursday, November 3rd. I'm Kate Smith, an editor for Bloomberg News here in New York. I'm joined today in the studio by Dan Moss, executive editor for Economics. Hi, Kate. Hey, Dan. So today we're going to talk about the price of eating. I read this really interesting research report from Goldman Sachs a couple months ago, and it said that the S&P Agriculture Livestock Index, it's fallen more than 20% from early 2015. So I read that and not being an econ reporter, thought that that was excellent news. But as he loves to do, Dan told me I was wrong. What are we going to do with you? Well, tell me why I'm wrong, Dan, one of your pastimes. Well, look, some throat clearing first. It is absolutely unquestionably true that for the societal good, quality food ought to be as affordable as possible. So now that your disclaimer is out of the way. Right. However, we live in a macroeconomic environment where although the global economy, including the US, has been growing since 2009, there is not just a lack of inflation the big story has been deflation and disinflation. And once the disinflation becomes persistent and you head down to zero, and in the instances of some countries, spend some time underneath zero, then there's the risk of some sort of deflationary trap. That is not a good thing okay, for the economy or for society. So like all of these things, it's a question of balance and a question of context. Okay, so where do where does food fit into that then? Well, you know, again, one of the reasons why I think people feel that we haven't been growing since 2009. I mean, you've seen surveys which show people still think we're in recession. Okay. Right. We have been growing since 2009. But people say they're not feeling it principally because they're not getting big wage increases. Why no big wage increases? Well, partly there's no inflationary pressure. Okay. okay, and food is one component in the global price chain. So it's kind of like if food prices are decreasing, it means that those vendors of the food can't raise their wages, which means that you can't raise your wages. It's just this big cycle kind of like that? Well, it doesn't mean they can't, right? Okay. I mean, employers can do whatever they want But with they wages. don't have to? There's no pressure? 
Well, again, it's part of the totality here. If you've got an economy where there's little inflationary pressure and little wage pressure, though there's some signs that is changing, Okay. you know, as we hang around 5% unemployment for a while, if there's no real pressure to do so, then people just aren't going to do so. Okay. So there's just no pressure to do it. And then that's kind of where we are now? Well, I mean, again, this is the intersection of where societal good, quality, affordable food for everybody is, you know, when you put it into the broader mosaic of this living, breathing economy, like all things, you can have too much of a good thing. That's really what I'm trying to say. Okay. Have I hedged enough? (laughs) I think so. I think so. So basically what you're saying is cheap food is too much of a good thing. No, I'm saying in the overall context of of the forces that are shaping the kind of economy we've had since 2009, one of the downsides has been a disinflationary, deflationary trend. Now, there is some evidence that that is abating, okay, not ceased, but abating. Okay. So that's the context that I'm asking you to look at. All right. Well, Dan, I'm going to pull you out of your comfort zone now. Because we're not going to talk about economic, we're not going to talk about the you know deflation inflation. Because I want to talk about just one more thing. Listeners okay, might okay. be curious about. Listeners might say, but wait a second. The Fed looks at core measures of inflation, you know, as do many central banks around the world, and that's supposed to exclude food prices and fuel. Well, it does, except food consumed outside the home is actually part of an inflation indicator that the Federal Reserve watches very closely. It's called the core PCE. PCE and core PCE. Well, Dan, you laid us up for then my segue, because instead of talking about kind of inflation, deflation, all these things, I wanted to talk about what cheaper food prices actually mean for the business models that have food in them, obviously restaurants. So to help us figure out what's going on here, we have in the studio today Al Demeglio. For some of our older listeners, you might know him from the restaurant in the Twin Towers, Windows of the World. Our younger listeners will know him from Ruby Rosa, home of the most photographed pizza on earth. Dan, that's actually true. Um, so today he's six months into his latest venture, a new Italian restaurant in South Williamsburg, Burano. Oh, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. Of course. South Williamsburg, or Billyburg, is that what I should call it? Dan, no one calls it Billy Bird. Except for those people like me who live in Brooklyn Heights, right? And we fantasize about being 30 years younger and hanging out. I think she hit the nail on the head. Yeah. <laughs> so does this mean uh, your new place is hip? Uh, I wouldn't say I'm hip. I'd say um, I'm a restaurateur trying to hit an area that's about to explode. And I, there's all signs of it going on in my area. And it's definitely in the next four years, you're going to see that it's probably just going to be as big as the north side. I actually went to visit Dan, I'm sorry, not Dan's restaurant, Al's restaurant on Monday. And the amount of construction in South Williamsburg, the cranes, the construction sites, was it was just staggering. I don't know if you've been around there, Dan, recently. No. So what makes you... And people like you, Al, spot like the next, next, next thing in terms of opportunities to put a place. Um, basically, what what got me interested in the area is the obviously the building, right? And then we looked a little deeper. And since you're a numbers guy, we basically saw that in the next four years, there's five thousand apartments coming to the neighborhood. So just add times it by two, ten thousand people, thousand feet from your door. The math is good. That's incredible. Well, let's let's d- 
dive into the restaurant model before we get into the food piece. So, Al, can you walk us through kind of the business model of having a restaurant? You've clearly done it a few times. Uh, you know, kind of what margins are typical. Just kind of walk us through that. I mean, if you just open up a textbook, you start looking at, you know, you want 8% rent. That's the golden. You don't get that in Manhattan. Never. If you do, you're very lucky. Um, you got food cost. Everybody's like, oh, you got to be under 28%. If you're hitting 25, you're drinking champagne. And if you're over 30, you kind of, how do I get it down? Labor cost is another big one, right? So labor cost, you want to keep it under 35, but you really want it at 28, which is another impossible feat. But you've tried time and time again. Um, but overall, those are the major numbers, the controllables. You know, So right there, I just spat out almost 60 70% of where you're at. You only got 30% wiggle room now. And right. then that's when the utilities and everything else comes in. So it, it's a, it's definitely a tough game of numbers, um, but you can't deposit percentages. Does this general economic narrative of low inflation, low wage pressure, et cetera, does that resonate with you? Uh, low wage pressure, actually, it's the inverse for my business right now because everybody just signed, um, they just signed something to bring minimum wage up to $15 an hour. For the restaurant industry, at the end of this year, we're going from nine fifty to eleven dollars an hour. So it's it's kind of inverse to what I've been seeing, you know. And um, I always believe in fair wage, but it's this is a very aggressive wage increase for the restaurant business, and something we're not sure how to handle yet, and we're trying to put our arms around it. On the food bit, you know, you and I spoke on Monday. Can you tell us about some of the areas that you've seen food pricing drop? Like, we can talk about an index from Goldman, but like, help us like contextualize that. Like, what on the menu, what items have actually decreased in I'm, price? The major things that I've seen decrease is mm -hmm. dairy. Anything okay. in the dairy, um, meat, not really, but a little bit. Um, I was looking at my my bills. It did decrease decrease a little bit, but what happened is all the the un Unknown cuts started increasing, and the primal cuts were like kind of flatlining. So all like basically all the cuts we know, New York Strip, Porterhouse, they've kind of flatlined. But all the other steaks, like a chuck steak or a hanger steak, they started to take a climb. So when you're not looking, that kind of came up in the rears. Why did that happen? Dan, you're looking very confused. I was just going to ask Al if he studies commodity prices each day. <laughs> Uh, no, but I think it's starting to be a good idea. You, you mean probably, you don't you, have a you, Bloomberg <laughs> terminal in your office? <laughs> well, if you wanted to, I'll take one back to the restaurant for sure. Swap you for yeah. some cannolis for some yeah. Bloomberg. Yeah, cannolis, Bloomberg uh, knowledge, take it. But but really, I mean, Dan's question, do you do you look at commodity prices? Um, not No, honestly, no, I don't. Okay. I mean, the amount of time I'm actually a working partner in my restaurant, so I'm hands, knees deep in you know getting the job done. So basically what I do is I look at my invoices. I see where my invoices are. Is there a spike week over week? Um, can I use my leverage of knowing my purveyors for such a long time to push them back down? Because it's, it's normal to do the creep, but you've got to be control your business and push the creep back down. What's the average lifespan of a New York City restaurant? I mean, you've got to have your thing, I imagine, and you've got to have your edge. And if you're not cutting it, it can get old pretty quickly. So talk a bit about that. Um, two things on that, right? So most restaurants in New York City or in the, wor in the world say, I think your value is your, your lease, right? Everybody talks about lease. I'm very fortunate to have a partner that we own the realty. 
which is home run. So that just expands your lifespan dynamically, ridiculously. If I can jump in, how common is that? Uh, pretty uncommon. Okay. Pretty uncommon. Um, because most of the people in real estate wouldn't even want to touch a restaurant. You know, if I like for an example, if I said, okay, let's do a three million dollar, let's do a three million dollar deal, and I'm going to make about ten percent a year off a million bucks, or fifteen percent a year off a million bucks, most people would laugh, walk away, and like I can do that while I'm sleeping. You know, that enters my bank account doing nothing. Why should I work for it? Um, but yeah, I mean, that's that's a tough one. That's interesting. And then on the food bit, you're saying that you can negotiate with your vendors sometime. I mean, what what does that look like? Um, usually like pay early, you know, you do the tricks like that. Be, be frugal, be smart, buy what you can. Don't buy on impulse like everybody else does, right? You've got, it's, it's, it's your own bank account, but it's a business bank account. So as a chef or anybody else as a restaurant, you want to be creative. You want to be cutting edge. You want to increase the lifespan of the restaurant. So you're like, what can I do next? What can I do next? But you have to realize what can you do next that makes money that's affordable, that keeps your lifespan going. Because if you're not the next, the next hottest thing, people forget about you. That's What's the question. theme of your new South Williamsburg restaurant? So basically what I did is I did a tribute to my grandmother. She came from Ischia, Barano, um, and she basically taught me how to cook. So she was it for me and getting me in the food business, and then she hated me for doing it. But, <laughs> um, but that being said, it's, it's, Itali it's Southern Italian. There's a lot of Northern Italian restaurants, so I wanted to be Southern. Um, we did a lot of wood-fired cooking because she wouldn't know how to turn on a gas knob until she came to America. She used to throw fire in the oven, and that's how she cooked. Ice in the, ice in the fridge, and that's what kept it cold. And then I just wanted to focus my menu around Campania region, which is where Barano's from. And so we do mozzarella, we make pizza, we do pasta, and then everything comes off the wood-fired as much as possible. We're going to take a break and hear from our sponsor. I don't think they're in the food business, but listen anyway. Brought to you by Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Seeing what others have seen, but uncovering what others may not. Global research that helps you harness disruption. Voted top global research firm five years running. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Welcome back. Um, Al, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about how you could incentivize, you know, with these fluctuating food prices, how can you incentivize your chefs to make sure that they're putting specials together and making the kinds of meals that are going to be both good for your customers, but then also for the bottom line? So the good thing about that, about creativity, nobody gets in this business unless they want to be creative. You actually have to control it. It's the inverse. So what you want to control is what they're spending and how much labor they're using to make that special, right? They'll, they'll make specials all day long. And if they don't sell, they'll just, okay, put it in family meal, do something else. But you, you actually have to think, okay, I made this special. Now it didn't really sell. What can I do with it to change it to actually sell, right? So if I do a rabbit dish, maybe the rabbit dish doesn't sell. But if I convert that rabbit to pasta, it starts to sell. So I believe incentivizing them on food costs and labor costs so they become your partner and they don't even know it, right? They're doing it because for themselves, but yet they're doing it for the better of the business. And is that something new that you've done at Barano or have you done that at other restaurants as well? Um, I see it done with the main chef usually 
all the time. The head chef, anything, he's always got some kind of program to entice his paycheck as well as entice the restaurant's livelihood. I'm doing it with sous chefs. So I'm taking it a step further. I'm doing it with wine director. So this way, get the wine in, sell the wine, make more money. Got it. And then when you're coming up with the menu, so outside of just your specials, your your menu, I, we, we spoke about this on Monday. I thought it was fascinating. When you're putting together a menu to kind of balance out some of the food, the margins are smaller with the larger ones. Can you walk us through that? So there's a lot of things. At the end, like I said, you want like 28% food cost or better, right? So when you're starting to build your menu, you want to have some great, fun, high-ticket items, but then you need some to help bring down that percentage. And can you jump in and tell us like what those are? So if I'm looking at a menu, like so what if are those things? So if you're looking at a menu and you're thinking about a steak or a rack of lamb or things like that, those are huge center-of-the-plate items, right? So the percentage of food costs will be up to 40%, right? Now, okay, now I have that. What's going to sell equally or slightly more that's a better food cost that's 12%? So when they're combined, they're down to 30. Salad, um, something fried, right? Okay. I mean, <laughs> rice ball. A rice ball. Yeah. Okay, got it. Interesting. So back to wages, you know, the idea that Danny Meyer pioneered, and it created a lot of buzz at the time, of doing away with tips uh, and adding it to salary. How is that ricocheting, if that's even the word, through the business, through the industry? I think there's a lot of people jumping on the bandwagon. Um, it's still uncharted ter- territory. So as a business owner, it's it's a risk. We, we definitely looked at, um, but not at the time we're willing to gamble with. Um, but I kind of, I do understand it. You want to be in control of what your employees make. If they're good, you reward them. They get a raise. This way, it's all status quo. They come in, they make their $7.50, $9 an hour, and they're making 20%. So you do $1,000 in sales, they're making $200. Done, you know? And it's kind of like, it, it's a salary. I'd rather be able to control and entice them to work harder or give them something where I can control it rather than the guests control it. Do the staff have strong feelings about this either way? Oh, I think they're so against. I, I, I don't think they are for getting the salary or getting a bigger wage. They want the tips. Because then they're in control, right? So okay. So this is about reordering the balance of power in an entire industry. It's, it's earth-shaking for our business to figure it out right now. And it must be tough when you have some restaurants doing it and some restaurants not doing it in certain you know, brackets of the restaurant world. I say this because I remember I was looking at two restaurants, one that had the tip tip was included and I remember looking at the menus thinking that one restaurant was it just seemed a little bit more expensive than it ought to be but that's because all the tip was included and I just I wasn't you know automatically thinking about that so I imagine I wasn't the only person that was you know comparing menus for a a meal out with my significant other family and was just like this place just seems overpriced I'm not gonna so that has to be I mean that has to be kind of a little bit of uneven playing fields too if you want to be a newcomer you have to you have to be so buzzy about it I firmly believe that. I think, you know, people look at it and people like control. Everybody wants to be in control of something, right? And this is the easiest thing for people to be in control of. As a consumer, you go out, you eat, you judge how well you were treated. You leave the tip accordingly. Mm-hmm. People are starting to think, who are you to tell me what I'm supposed to tip? Especially when you see the 20% that just gets added on the bottom, right? Um, so these are all very hard things to deal with as a restaurateur because it's like, 
what do you do? You know, because if you do something, you can end up losing, uh, losing profit. Right, Dan. In Australia, I know in Europe, gratuity is often included. Is it is it included in Australia? Tipping never used to be a thing. It's increasingly become a thing. What do you mean by it wasn't a thing? Well, people didn't really do it. I mean, you would only do it. <laughs> If uh, and I'm talking about you know when I was in my youth, people okay. would only do it if like wow, that's really exceptional. Okay. Um, not really a given. In fact, I was just about to ask. You know, having been in the United States now for ten years, uh, you know, I'm always thinking in terms of the tip. Now I was in Japan in September and I had to constantly correct myself every time my wife and I went to a restaurant. It's like, oh my god, massive societal faux pas here. I almost left a tip and I'm you know quickly crossing it out. I was, it, when I was yeah. in London earlier this year, it was the same thing. I mean, some restaurants did and some didn't. I, it was like seventy thirty, and you, I had to like actively like really read the the uh, the receipt just to make sure I didn't I didn't make the mistake. It was. Now, was this in the London area or was this somewhere else? This was in London. Yeah, I think it's probably pretty attuned to here. I mean, people are looking for tips. They're anticipating tips, particularly if you're anywhere near a business district. Yeah. but some Given of the, the amount of transatlantic traffic that goes on. You would think so, but I was actually surprised because... We were, and I really like food. I should probably have this as a disclaimer. I really, really like restaurants and food. We went to some really nice restaurants is what I'm trying to say. And it was like 70-30, though. And when I'm thinking of the same kinds of restaurant in New York, there's only one restaurant group that does it. It's de- it definitely was more than in New York. I mean, I don't know why Dan and I are talking about this. You probably know <laughs> well, much better than we do. No, I mean, honestly, one of the things we brought up on Monday was, you know, it's kind of a broken system. It's like the only system, the only business where we pay some and the customer pays some of the other wages, right? So it's not common. I mean, I've been to Italy. I've been to Thailand. It just doesn't happen. You pay your, you pay your employees. You charge what you need to charge. Except I think people are so used to food prices being at a certain point mm-hmm. because at the end of the day, you know, like you're saying, it's, it's about people going out to eat the food. When you go out to eat the food, it's not just about the food. Like if you go to Walmart and pull something and it is what it is and you go home and there's no service. Our food includes the service, includes the ambiance, includes everything. So when you're pricing menus and things like that, I mean, that has to be a custom. But as far as going back to tips... It's it's not normal to to do this. So, but it became the normal to in uh, in America to tip people. So, who wants to break the mold first? You know, right. Danny Meyer obviously did, and once he did it, you saw a slew of other people do it. Except now, it's like the smaller guys like me, first restaurant coming out. Um, you're scared to make that wave. And you've got iconic things that seem to be emblematic of the way the food industry works in the United States. Like back in uh, the early 90s when I was still living in Sydney, I went to see Reservoir Dogs at the cinema. And there is that famous tipping scene at the entrance to that movie. And in fact, there was a quiz for anyone who went to the cinema that night. Uh, you know, What's the name of the gangster, Mr. XX, who doesn't tip? And if you got it correctly, you would get a free ticket to another movie of your choice. So if Reservoir Dogs were being made today, <laughs> what would happen? Exactly. 
I, I just think the whole tipping thing in America is gonna be tough, not because of the restaurateurs or the restaurants, it's, it's the consumer. The consumer does not want to lose control, and it's, that's the tough thing. Be, restaurants are struggling. There's, I've seen a few restaurants go with the no tipping and then revert back because it's like, well, that hurt too much. Really? Yeah. And one thing, I mean, going all the way back to the Goldman report that we started this show on, the fascinating, I mean, one of the other fascinating things of that report was that as food prices have declined 22% in the past almost two years, dining out costs have stayed the exact same, or mm. more or less. So clearly, like, you know, people really value going out. And even though they recognize that maybe making the meal at home has become significantly cheaper, they still want that service. They still want the whole experience. Do restaurants and restaurant staff recognize regulars? I mean, for example, if, you know, my wife and I are trying to figure out where to go for dinner, I'll be like, oh, yeah, that place is good. Let's go there. And we'll go to that place. And we're like, we remember it was really good here. But do they ever remember us as customers? They have to. And, <laughs> and why I say they have to, it's, it's part of the service, right? So for me, and as a chef saying this, food is secondary to me, right? Really? Service is primary. Because think about all the times. The, you just said it. You just nailed the head. Nailed the, uh, hit the nail on the head. That's what you did. Um, but anyway, it's like when you go out, you remember good service. And if it's good service and okay food, you'll go back. You want to be recognized. Not only do you want to be in control, you want to be recognized. You know, you're, you're in your life day in, day out. You want to go someplace and cheers is the best thing where everybody <laughs> knows your name, right? You want to go there, you know, how you doing? What's everything? Your drink that you drink all the time hits the table. And that's what people want. And then food. Because if you have bad food, great service, you might go back just because the service was so good. But if you have great food and crappy service, you're not going back. Or even okay food and excellent service. Perfect. I, there's a place around the corner from me that, you know, whenever I go in, they say hi and how you doing, this and that. And I go back all the time. I mean, the, the food is excellent. Don't get me right. wrong. But, you and know, have you ever wondered, are they like this with everyone or do they recognize Kate Smith? They recognize Kate Smith. Well, Al, <laughs> what you would say is, yeah, they definitely recognize it. Well, I was actually in there recently, and it was after I'd been there with my mother. And I came in, and they were like, oh, you are just in with your mom the other day. I was like, oh, I knew you actually recognized. It was the best thing ever. <laughs> well, Al, thank you so much for joining us. It was great to hear a little bit more about kind of the back, the back office of the restaurant business. Really, really interesting stuff. Benchmark will be back again next week. And until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, as well as on iTunes, Pocket Cast, and Stitcher. While you're there, take a minute to rate and review the show so more listeners can find us. And do let us know what you thought of the show. You can talk to and follow us on Twitter at, at DanielMossDC and at by Kate Smith. And you can follow our guest as well, as well as go to his restaurant. But before you do, check Al's restaurant out on Instagram. You can find them at Barano BK. Al, it was great to have you here. Pleasure being here. Great fun. Great soup. <laughs> and my recollection is it was Mr. Pink who did not want a tip. I never I, saw the movie. I think you're right. It's been a while for me, but I think you're right. Okay, thanks. <laughs> Thank you. See you next week. Brought to you by Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Seeing what others have seen, but uncovering what others may not. Global research that helps you harness disruption. Voted top global research firm five years running. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. 
It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie's based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.